0: Welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension of ROI Show 498. Our guest today is Dr. Christine Axon professor in the Department of History at Fordham University. We're going to be talking about History Happy Hour, Medieval Sleep and Dreams. The history buffs are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Ed, start us
1: off. Thanks, Jay. Uh, Christine, you mentioned a- about interpreting dreams um, and are there any examples that you're aware of where, in a certain place in time, if if a certain thing happened in a dream, it was interpreted to mean like A, and then over time, the interpretation changed, let's say over 50 or 100 or 200 years, to where that same event occurring in someone dream, someone's dreams was now interpreted to mean B instead of A?
2: So I don't have any specific examples on hand for that, but I would I would assume that one of the deciding factors would be the kind of climate that, um, of, that these dreams are occurring. In. And what I mean by climate is, of course, during periods of disease, you know, the Black Death, um, during periods of political stress or war, it would seem that certain dreams would have certain balances. And then in periods of prosperity, maybe it would be different.
1: And, and then by, by the same token, um, were there certain interpretations of, of particular events in a dream that uh, sort of originated in one place and then geographically and over time that that same interpretation spread to other places?
2: Um, I'm not sure of anything in particular, but, you know, I would assume that people are generally living kind of the same types of lives, right? Like all the nobility are, are dealing with certain... Things and all of the peasantry are dealing with others. Um, I would suspect there to be quite a lot of similarity, actually, in the interpretation of dreams. But again, I don't. I don't have a specific example. Sorry.
0: Okay, Brett.
3: So you talked um, about uh, medieval sleep being a little different. You know, multiple people to a bed sometimes fit in the whole family or even strangers in if you're on the road. Is that true also in um, like monastic houses um, and with members of the nobility?
2: So yes, for the nobility, for sure, but not for the monastic houses because in the rule of St. Benedict, which is the widest, widest followed monastic rule in the Middle Ages, um, St. Benedict specifically indicates that brothers are to sleep in their own beds and also, like, not with your sword, not with your knife on you, because you'll probably hurt yourself in your sleep. And he specifically talks about how the younger novices who are just starting out in this kind of difficult schedule where you're up at two in the morning to go to prayer, how they're supposed to be sleeping interspersed with the elder monks or nuns um, who are used to this way of life and who can kind of keep an eye on these on these novices. So there's very purposeful arrangement of people in monastic, in monastic houses. And we have a ninth century plan of an uh, or map, I guess of uh, an imaginary um, ideal monastery. And we see that there are seventy seven beds laid out in these very orderly fashions so that all the brothers are really in one dormitory. And interestingly, this monastery was designed to kind of aid in the comfort of sleep, because one of the the biggest afflictions, and this it's almost so obvious that you wouldn't even think of it, is the cold. So, in this monastery that was never built but just idealized, um, there's a room called the Califactory that was underneath the dormitory, and this is a room where there's hot air being pumped underneath the floor. And so, you think about the heat rising. This is going to make sleeping more comfortable, and the monks, of course, are going to keep on their ha- their uh, not their habits, their uh, monastic garb. Um, so they'll, they'll be pretty cozy in their wool.
3: So. so- Since peasants and nobles and the laity are all sharing beds and people in religious orders are not, does that also cause an adjustment period if, you know, I I grew up, snuggled next to my five brothers and sisters, and now I have a Mm -hmm. a bed all to myself, is that part of the acclimation process for many novices?
2: Possibly. I mean... You're you're going to be on a very narrow bed typically, um, either in a hostel or a monastery. So I don't know that there would be like so so much room to roll around or get, you know lay diagonal or anything like that. But one benefit of sleeping on your own is that there probably are not going to be that many pests in your bed. <laughs> so this is another thing that made sleep difficult in the you know in pre-industrial period is that you don't have protection from fleas and and mice and all of these vermin. Um, And so what people would do is actually uh, collect herbs that are insect repellents. So, for example, mint was one common one or thyme. So I would think the bed would be cleaner if it was just yours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious. Certainly in pre-Christian times, we have uh, gods and goddesses who are actively involved in the process of dreaming. Um, we certainly have that in, in Europe, uh, pre-Christian Europe. We also know that, that when Christianity comes along, these things are subverted, not exterminated. So are there, for the Middle Ages, are there individuals, maybe saints or, or somebody, you know, fairies, whatever, that are helping or hurting the, dream, the, the sleep and dream process?
2: Well, certainly saints make appearances with important messages for holy people, right? Not just appearing to anyone, but to their fellow saints. Usually, that become sainted later, canonized. Um, we also have examples of Jesus appearing in dreams, and then these are, you know, these are a little bit, a little bit trickier to uh, validate or or trust, maybe. But because here you have a supreme authority appearing to you, lowly human that you are. Um In Anglo-Saxon England, there are there's a belief in elves, um, and these can I think they're mostly um, like mischievous. Rather than helping somebody uh, dream well or sleep well, I think these are usually interfering.
1: Okay. Ed. yeah, um, Christine, you mentioned earlier that uh, people's sleep cycles uh, were by circadian rhythm were um, largely determined by circadian rhythm, and it follows that they would sleep more in the winter than in the summer. Um, Does it also follow that there's a seasonal aspect in terms of dreaming, in terms of, you know, being related to how long one slept, or, um, you know, were there more dreams the longer people slept? Or is there any kind of relationship there at all?
2: Hmm. I know that... um you have better dream recall from, or it's believed that you have better dream recall from this biphasic sleep. And so I would suspect that um, being able to remember the dream more clearly than our sort of like, you know, cell phone screen addled brains when we're up in the night, um, I suspect that that would lead to real interest in in, in interpretation. Um, As I said before, medieval people really liked to interpret things and so, I would I would suspect that it was probably fairly common to wake up and tell your family what you dreamt, just like we do around the breakfast table.
1: And so does it also follow, then, that some people would have more dreams, um, be they nightmares or something else, um, that they felt the need to have interpreted, as opposed to some people? Because, like, I can't remember my dreams for more than 30 seconds after I wake up. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I think also there's a there's a somewhat fanciful element to interpreting interpreting dreams, and i I bet people, you know I, I don't have like a specific text that's telling me this, but I would bet people took a lot of joy out of listening to each others and and offering their interpretation. Um so, yeah, i'm I'm assuming that the, the experience was varied, and I'm not so sure that you know a rustic laborer would have much interest in interpreting, but somebody who was reading courtly literature might, you know, because we see dreams popping up in that kind of text.
0: (laughs) Okay. Brett?
3: Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the other roles that dreams would play in terms of religious experience? Like, I recall um, reading about Hildegard of Bingham having some very trippy dreams and visions that she gets interpreted...
2: Right, So this is kind of like where we're blurring the line, because if the saint is dreaming, the saint is also somewhat um, in a period of revelation. right? So the messages coming from God, uh, being revelatory, are usually understood by these saints, or people who become saints later, um, for a call to action, or a call to reform, or maybe even to help others reform. So these are these are instructions from God, and so coming in the dream as they are, it really like pushes the message over into uh, some sort of mystical experience.
0: Okay,
1: Ed. yeah, uh-huh. Christine, is there any record of um, individuals using um, some kind of a mind altering substance to? perhaps cause them to have more vivid dreams or more of them Uh, and I think the one that I know about that comes immediately to mind would be ergot which is that fungal disease that can attack rye Uh, and it's kind of nasty stuff so do you know if I mean people you know in the case of ergot you would take it incidentally not you know on purpose but are there any substance were there any substances being used to facilitate dreams
2: well, people had, you know, tremendous botanical knowledge and healing knowledge um, from natural products, and it would not surprise me if people knew of something that you could take. I don't know that it would be advisable. <laughs> um, I'm actually working on poisons right now, and it brings up this interesting question of when does a medical substance move from good medicine to poisonous medicine? And so I, I would say it's probably the same I mean, but you i mean people are people are drinking plenty of alcohol as well, which can affect your dreams. Um, but I don't know of anybody who's doing it purposefully, but I'm sure people knew how if they wanted to
0: okay, well, I get the honor of the last question for this segment and and so i'm I'm just curious if there is a particular Dream that you ran across as you were doing your research that that you found to be uh, especially interesting or surprising. Um, was there something as you were researching that you didn't expect to find that that you did? Um, you know, so what what was kind of the the uh, seminal moment for you as you were looking at this?
2: Well, if we can go back to the sleepwalking, the other favorite uh, besides the bear fight is that. There's a belief that if somebody does something in life, they're likely to do it in sleep. And so when you get up and you're sleepwalking, um, we have accounts of people who uh, fight with weapons and then ride horses while sleeping. So I I like that one.
0: (laughs) I I don't want to make either person, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take
2: the bear. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. We, we would like to thank our guest for this 498th show, Dr. Christine Axon, professor in the Department of History at Fordham University. We've been talking about History Happy Hour, Medieval Sleep and Dreams. The history bus for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA radio or on the web at 2 If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA. KALA. KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.